Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Better Than Life, the episode-by-episode breakdown of Red Dwarf. I'm Fergus, and I've watched the show pretty much on a loop my whole life. And I'm John. I haven't rewatched the show in decades until now. We're all alone, more or less, because every episode we're joined by a professional joke wrangler and by Alex, producer and herder of cats. This time we're talking about series one, episode one, The End with Guy Kelly. Let's get out there and twat it. It's a show about a man who's lost three million years in space. His company and evolved cat and a hologram he hates. Plus a fuzzy robot and a ship that's gone senile We love the jokes and sci-fi stuff, that's why It's better than life We have a treat of a guest to kick things off. He's a comedian, actor, writer. He hosts the internet's only husband and wife Garfield podcast, and he's a fan of Red Dwarf. It's only Guy Kelly. It is. It's me. Hello. How are you doing? I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me along. Thank you for coming. We're honoured. It's our first episode. We're covering the first episode of Red Dwarf and you are here to help us with that. And that's a privilege for us. Genuinely a bit thrilled. It's a privilege for me as well. Like, what, an, what an absolute treat. Lovely idea for a podcast. Looking forward to you recording more of these so I can listen to it. <laughs> Let's see how you get on. We can have you back on. <laughs> so Red Dwarf, what level of fan are you like if if there's a scale that goes from oh i like him off the britass empire through to uh <laughs> technically gelfs aren't aliens where, where do you sit on that scale much much more towards the technically gelfs aren't aliens obviously they're genetically engineered life forms the clue is in the name, the clue's in the name. Um, my my red dwarf sort of fandom journey if one can call it that has ebbed and flowed with time as i think a lot of people's will have that sort of sure picks up on it as a kid, um, it was sort of, yeah, broadcasting. I don't know when the first episode was broadcast. I watched it yesterday, but I couldn't tell you the broadcast date of it. Um, but I, I I sort of watched an episode of it when I felt like I was slightly too young to get it, and it terrified me. And then as I grew up a bit, 
stumbled across it on TV again. And it was only a, a couple of years later that I realised, oh, that terrifying thing that I saw was this silly sci-fi kickabout sitcom. Never want to do things in half measures. Signed up to the Red Dwarf fan club, so oh, wow. got the, uh, the was it the monthly Smegazine that Smegazine, came out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, proudly wore the watch where the the wrist strap of that the wristband said Smeghead. That was great. I've never never cosplayed as anything from Red Dwarf, though occasionally when my hair gets longer, I do think that a sort of gold lame jacket cosplaying as Ace Rimmer mm. would be an absolute treat, just to be a swaggering arsehole. How are you with the voice? See, that's a tricky thing to do. I, I like to consider myself as being all right at sort of voices generally, but Chris Barry, as I'm sure we'll touch on, was a mimic, like his voice is incredible. That was effectively his background because he was on Spitting Image before he mm. came to Red Dwarf, I believe. I'd be too afraid to even try it at the fear that he'd just appear at my door and be like, no, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever hear the audio chords of the books, like Infinity yes, Wealth and Scarf Tribes? He does incredible. all the voices and he is... I mean, it's 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 uncanny. Yeah, it's it's magical. I mean, one of the, one of the notes I've got from watching the the first episode, which I'm I'm sure we'll get to, is there's there's a bit where Rimmer mocks Lister and he mocks him with Lister's voice. You're like, oh, this is this is so good. Yeah, it is. It's it's an extraordinary thing. I think the premiere was February 1988. Were you were you in on the ground floor? Were you in right there, or was it? Was no, it no, I was. Um, I'm I'm but a wee slip of a lad. I was. And you say 88 or 98? 88. 88. Then I was a wee slip of a lad. I was too. That is too young for Red Dwarf. And so yeah, I came I came to it much later. My, my first experience of Red Dwarf was coming downstairs. And I think either my parents were watching telly or had left the room with the TV on. And I, I'd been sent to bed. Not through any misdeed. It's just you need to sleep as a, <laughs> as a child. It's a horrible punishment. And so, yeah, it was, it was nighttime. I came downstairs. Something was on the TV. And it was, I later realised, the episode where... Uh, Rimmer gets some sort of space hologram virus and Mr. Flibble has terrible powers. Quarantine is called. Quarantine, that's it. Rimmer wears a pink gingham dress. Mr. Flibble, the little potato the potato puppet? What? The penguin puppet? Which I've got upstairs. Not the original, obviously, but I've got a Mr. Flibble upstairs. You have a Mr. Flibble? I've got a Mr. <sighs> Flibble somewhere. And I remember that scaring the absolute piss out of me. I was terrified. It was this larger than life thing that it, it looked like a scene from hell like if i'd if, if i sort of later on in life watched event horizon mm. i'd think oh i remember this bit from event horizon like it it occupied the same kind of horror for me because it was this this man obviously completely around the bend this nightmarish shoddy penguin puppet that just radiated evil <laughs> And it terrified me. I don't recall whether I like ran away from it, but I certainly didn't continue watching it. And that stuck with me for a while as like quite a horrifying experience. I can't have been too old. I can't remember when that episode came. This is going to turn out like, yeah, I was 15 and just did it. <laughs> no, but, you'd, have been, you'd have been under 10, definitely, definitely. I want to say that would have been like 93, 94, maybe. Have you got it in front of you, Alex? On, um, yeah, 1992. 92, oh, there you go. But it was repeated, right? It might have been so If, I, if I was six, I think it, it's acceptable to be scared witless by that at the age of six. Let's, let's I'd agree. <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of crossover with that episode and Doctor Who stuff. Like, There's the, 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 the German-accented scientist... With the melted face, with red laser eyes, in that same episode, oh god, she was yeah, extremely terrifying. But then I think we couldn't do that. Who'd clear up the mess? Is one of my favourite lines in all of <laughs> in, in the whole show. So I'm not sure. So so 
you were scared before you were amused. When did you find the... 100%, yeah. Are you still, or did you find the funny in it eventually? <laughs> um, I've, I've watched it since. I've conquered those demons. Um, I, oh, well done. As I say, I, I, I own an instance of my tormentor uh, in a box of stuff upstairs. But yeah, I, I don't remember when I came back to it. Because I, I don't think at the time I'd registered that that was Red Dwarf. That was just a scary thing that was on telly. And it was only years later when I must have stumbled across quarantine at an age that I could have appreciated it, where I went, oh, hang on a minute. Th- this is this nightmarish thing I remember watching. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a few years later. I, I must have been, I guess, around nine or ten I started getting into it. I've got a copy of the novel, or the, the omnibus of the novel, mm. which is the one that I bought as a kid, and it's like battered and bruised, and the spine of it's been taped up several times. It's stained with the... You know, the sort of horrible toys that you can buy for children that's like a, a mesh bag with, like, goo in it, a rubber skin, and then just, like, staining, like, something like that, or it had, like, skulls in it, and that burst, and so part of the, the book is now stained red. <laughs> so I, I, I really got into it, and it's sort of... It's been a thing that, that lasted a while, and I got, like, weirdly into, like I say, subscribing to the magazines and, like, hoovering up every episode that I could... Of course, around that time, there was no way of knowing which episodes I'd seen and which I hadn't, because we didn't have all the world's entertainment media at our fingertips. You could kind of go by production value to an extent, couldn't you? This is true. Like, the worse the show looked, the (laughs) earlier it was, right? That was a fairly simple trade-off they made with production design. Did you ever wear a black t-shirt that simply read, let's get out there and smeg it? Actually, sorry, Uh, let's get out there and twat it. Uh, No, but there was somebody, I I was in an improv sort of actor like a sort of youth theatery improv thing uh in bedworth which for for those of you midlands inclined will already send shivers down your spine there was somebody there who had a <laughs> let's get out there and twat it t-shirt over the past few weeks i have been god help me looking on ebay for a don't shush shush shoot t-shirt mm. that mister wears but that's a cool t-shirt and a deep reference <laughs> right that would be a deep that's cut. not a quote if you saw if you saw someone wearing a don't don't shoot or don't shoot t-shirt, you'd be like, yeah, cool tee, whether you knew it was Lister's original t-shirt or not. When I saw someone wearing a let's get out there and twat it t-shirt, part of me thought, yeah, cool tee, that means you're into Red Dwarf, great, so am I. The other part of me thought, what do people who haven't seen Red Dwarf think that t-shirt is? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? What do you mean, let's? Like, what are you trying to sell? <laughs> So so was it that scariness that hooked you or was it this kind of second loop around where you went, oh, it's funny too? Yes, it was de- definitely the, 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 the second loop. So when I, as I say, like when I, I should say, when I first properly got into it, that was just watching it as a comedy sci-fi series. I was a fan of uh, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide, all that sort of thing. And it was like, oh, this is, this is funny, but it's also good sci-fi. Mm. And that's something that I, I really sort of, enjoy from it like when you when you can properly blend together two genres this is just plugging a friend's thing now i don't know if any of you have listened to the sync a comedy horror podcast from bbc sounds it's on the list as of now that is comedy and horror in a way that the horror or rather the, the comedy doesn't sort of undercut the horror it's not like oh we're laughing it's a relief it's like oh we're laughing but things are still really bad mm. and red dwarf kind of did that with sci-fi and and with comedy um, I don't want to go on a huge tangent about the, the novelizations, but my God, if you're listening to this and you've somehow not read 
the Red Dwarf novelizations. What are you doing? Which would be wild to me. Like, I'm interested in Red Dwarf enough to listen to a podcast about it, but I'm not going to go through the ancillary media. That's that's an outrageous... What are you doing with your life? <laughs> it is. Stop that it. Is a That is a fault. That is a red flag. It is. But the the, the exploration in the, in the novels, the, the sort of space to give the sci-fi room to breathe, while still being funny and still having like a high gag rate per page and funny situations and sort of sparkly dialogue between the characters... And I think that's one thing that sort of cemented or, or deepened my interest in the series, sort of seeing these characters in a kind of more intricate way. Like, it's not just, we've got a cool sci-fi idea, we're going to run with it for 25 minutes, and then we're on to the next thing. This is, here's one of these cool sci-fi ideas, and we are going to pick it to the bone. We are going to explore the concept and, and work behind that. And that, for me, was just just delicious. Like, I'm... I'm the sort of person that likes lore in things. It's why I can't play World of Warcraft, because I'll have to read every item description <laughs> and I'll just die in my chair. And Red Dwarf for me was was something like that. It it sort of suggested a world. And I like one of my notes from writing this down yesterday, when we first meet uh, Rimmer and Lister, you've got Lister singing from Ganymede and Titan, yes, sir, I've been around. What a lovely bit of world building. Mm. There's folksy songs about visiting Galilean moons of Jupiter. Like, because mm. of course there would be, and it's that—that's the kind of thing that that really got me. In. That's why I've still got the Red Dwarf Survival Guide upstairs. Haven't read it for twenty years, but it's like, oh, it's more of this world. I mean, the books obviously replay moments from the series in more novelistic ways. So, in a way, they're a sort of an alternative timeline, if you like. Are they canon to you, Guy? Are they your canon? I think they are, just because it, it's extra world building in it like it's extra detail the finding out why Lister ended up on Red Dwarf they're sort of going into the detail the backstory of his plan for Frankenstein and it, it just it deepens the characters and it it gives a sort of a, a richness to the world that is there in the show but I don't know it make, makes everything feel bigger and, and feels sort of more more lived in like it's a, it's a sort of silly comparison but like a, th a thing I love about the first Alien film is the ship that they're in looks gross it's dirty the walls are scuffed it's been built by the people who bid the lowest like it's just work a day dull it's not exciting that they're space truckers they're space truckers and that's that's what red dwarfs got with the added benefit of the sets are made out of like repainted tubes of toothpaste did doug naylor and rob grant not cite alien in fact for that whole truckers in space thing that kind of oh, really used universe thing it, it does work the, the production value on series one. Let's let's <laughs> let's be honest. It's not it's not high. I'd buy it. I be, I believe. Well, I certainly believed it when I first saw, saw it. Oh god, yeah. It's consistent enough, and it's sort of internally. It follows its own internal logic to the point where even and I don't know if it's in the pilot or in one of the later episodes of season one, where there's a camera shot where you can just see part of the soundstage. Like the the framing is above like whatever the eye line should be, and you can just see whatever studio lot they were in. But it doesn't take you out of it because the the world is drab grey paint of infinite different <laughs> uh, hues and lusters. It is bits of piping hanging from the ceiling, and it, it's just there's something sort of knockabout to it that just fits. Yeah, it's it's constantly falling apart. It's worse than the Millennium Falcon. It looks rubbish. <laughs> like it's one of my favourite spaceship designs ever, but it is rubbish. Like it's a bad spaceship, right? It doesn't make. How did they launch it? <laughs> this is what's lovely about again the, the the books. If you if your mind is that way inclined, which mine very much was, learning about this like the reason why it's so 
blocky and so like without any element of aerodynamics whatsoever because it'll never land this 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 huge hulk of a thing and i really don't want to talk about the books too much because you've had a whole thing on that but the the book's description of it being like miles and miles and miles long and the scale of it yeah it it gives me the shivers even now as i sit sort of decades <laughs> removed from it there's something philosophical to be said about the the kind of the sterility of his situation, Lister's situation, an all male environment. He's the last last human in the middle of space, but he's in a castle somehow. He's in, I, <laughs> I think it is important that he's in such a big thing because he's he's double dwarfed. He's double tiny. He's double insignificant somehow. Do you know what? Let's let's we do need to get onto the specific episode. I just had a couple of really quick questions. Yeah, for, uh, quick fires. Let's do let's call it that. So, do you have a favourite episode? I do like the Waxworld episode because there's a sort of real tragedy to that, while also being very funny. Hmm. So, a, a line about Winnie the Pooh either sort of bleeding out or doing a bayonet charge or, or, or something <laughs> yes. like that. Yeah, it's really horrible. Yeah. So, I, I think that's up there with them. Um, what was the other one? Oh, the the Wild West. Oh, Gunman of the Apocalypse. Lovely stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I do wonder whether, again, my love for that is because that's really elaborated on in the books. Mm. I don't know if it's also because I had one of those um, VHS collections of like the Smegups, like, oh, here's all the outtakes and here's all the bits. And there was oh, a bit so about, good. Yeah, how difficult it was to get the two bullets to hit each other and to fall fall to the floor. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if my appreciation of that episode is is deepened by the fact that I'd seen the fuss that the production team had to to shoot it. But again, it, it's a it's a lovely little pocket sci fi mm. idea mm. that's just also sort of drawing on quite like mythic imagery and. Mm. That's really, really valid. It is iconic. Is you're combining two such iconic genre and smashing them together. Was there a point at which? And I know this might be a bit of a downbeat question, and and there is a a pattern. The Canaries, right? Okay. <laughs> is, uh, yeah. When when did you when did you stop watching? And that's the answer. So let's move on. Um, no. So 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 are you, are you are you one of the people that's um, series seven, meh, series eight? No, thank you. Yeah, I I remember getting really excited about it, and I think it's the excitement that stings more than the quality of those episodes because it was like oh god there's new red dwarf it's coming like oh my god there's a because there'd been a there'd been a long gap yeah yeah i was gonna say it felt like a big gap i couldn't tell whether it was because i was a kid no it was it was much much longer than you had before and also it was coming back on bbc one if i remember correctly which made it feel like an even bigger deal yeah and i thought like oh this is great and oh my god like they're gonna do all these interesting things and then it felt a little bit tired I don't know, it didn't quite feel right. And then a few years, well, a few years, several years later, when they made the jump to Dave, I tried giving the first episode of that a watch because I thought, oh, let's see what it is. And it was, it just felt, it, it felt like something wearing its face. Like it, it felt like something sort of wrong wearing the face of a loved one. And like Starbug being a little naff car and they were driving around in, I don't know, Emmerdale or something. And I, <laughs> oh, was this... Is this Back to Earth, the kind of Series 9 mini-series? Yeah, I think so. Right? I remember watching a bit of that and just feeling a bit sad. <laughs> Can I suggest, make it just a bit a bit of friendly, friendly advice, give Series 10, the series after that, a go. Okay. It makes me laugh. It, it adds to, to the lore. They meet some, they stick to their own patterns. They meet some new people. There's more sci-fi ideas to be done. It's not a patch on your favourite series, but... It's it's worth it. 
I'm hesitant here because this all comes with the proviso that I watched it while I was uh, really feverish with COVID. So, um, <laughs> so just a little bit of delirium. Yeah, then... yeah, but that helps. <laughs> but if you're not enjoying it, guy, give yourself a second chance. You know, go out to a lot of parties over winter, and you know, <laughs> try again. Just get strangers to like lick my teeth a bit. It's, it's worth it. It's red wolf. It's worth. <laughs> I just have one last little little general question about Red Dwarf uh, before I hand over to John, who's going to kind of take us through the, the episode specifically. There's rumours. There's been rumours since the thing started, but there's, there's fresh rumours about a film happening. And the big question is going to be, is it going to be the, the same four or five leads? Who would you want to see playing Lister and Rimmer? I've, I mean, I've thought about recasting. Because it's like, something to to keep in mind with Red Dwarf and like in the, the 80s when it was released, it wasn't a majority white cast. Like it was, and that that's a, again, a, a sounds weird to say like a brave choice for its time, but it, it kind of was as well as not having just like s- straight comedy actors. You've got poets, you've got dancers, you've got so on and so forth. Given given how little acknowledgement that gets. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's almost weird to think of Red Dwarf as that kind of show. But it is. And so I'd, I'd, I'd obviously want to keep something like that. I really like the idea of Nish Kumar as Rimmer. Oh, my God. I think he's got such a... Like, he, he can draw on a sort of aggravated pomposity. Yes. And, like, I, lo- I love the man. He's a lovely guy. I'm not saying this to call him a prick. No, but his his Orwellian rants against the Tories on, say, the Bugle podcast, they're, 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 they're chef's kiss. They're incredible. I mean, he's, yeah, so angry. Yes, I I just think yeah he could he could really channel that to sort of present like the bitterness and that like Rimmer is a pathetic figure. I'm not saying he's got no redeeming features, but he's just such a gutless, miserable little wretch of a man who's so fueled with self-loathing, but also with pomposity. And I I think that Nish should give a really lovely sort of turn for that. I I just think mm. he'd be able to do the sort of weirdly almost barely restrained kind of indignation and I'd, I'd, I'd love to see him give that a try as for Lister I'm not sure I've not seen much of Gaz Khan's stuff oh. but I can see him going for that Lister's a tricky one to cast because it, there's there's something so Craig Charles about that character that I don't know it, it feels strange to try and put somebody else into into those shoes do you, do you have any thoughts on on who your Lister would be. No, we're, we're, we're kind of gathering evidence. It's interesting. My theory about Lister, a current Lister, is that we won't have heard of them. Nice. Because whoever would end up playing Lister is, it, it has to be a specific type of everyman that cannot be someone already known to the, to the, to the general public. I don't know, that's a very, that's a lazy answer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Speculative casting. We've done Rimmer. We've done Lister, kind of. Who's next? Cat? Have you got a cat in mind, Guy? I think cat is really difficult because either you want somebody who's like a, a big bruiser tomcat or you want somebody really live and like sexy and cool and ridiculous. I don't know. I, th- I think something from like the, the crop of clowns that we have, it's out there, but maybe like elf lions as cat. Um, those of you that don't know elf lions, lovely performer, clown, general sort of on stage uh, weirdo. <laughs> And I think that would be like an interesting turn. Yeah, a little more androgyny as well might help that character somehow. I don't know why I think that. Speaking yeah. of, in a way, 
your holly, would you go the Hattie route or the Norman route? I like the idea of Bob Mortimer as oh, holly. that's great, yeah. Because I, I think regional accents are important for that show. Um, obviously, he was supposed to be like the... Hol- holly in the book, stop it, guy. <laughs> uh, I just get a bell every time I say the book. Like, it, it details, you know, the description of him as a sort of very London kind of accent. <laughs> just to be a horrendous name dropper. One of the highlights of my comedy career was I was doing a gig um, on the same bill as Norman Lovett Ooh. and getting into the green room and actual Holly sitting there looking up at us as we come in and going, oh, I don't. Oh. <laughs> Stop it. Um, but yeah, I, I think nice. Bob Mortimer would have a really sort of pleasing inbuilt weirdness to it because he is an, just an odd man. And I, and I think that would, would really lend itself to this great, tremendous intellect that's just gone stagnant mm. over three million years of outrageous loneliness. That's great casting. That's lovely. Um, and with maybe Matt Berry as Queeg, we're not quite there yet, but if we did a Queeg episode with a Matt Berry as that kind of booming voice. Do we have any ideas on Crichton? I know we haven't met Crichton yet in the chronology of the podcast, but... Crichton, I, I've For a while I thought that Richard Ioadi would be a good Crichton. Mm. I think there's... Just something about that very particular voice that he uses that I think brought back a little bit would be ideal for Crichton. Like just that voice trying to say Smeghead and failing to do it would be lovely. Yeah, that's really nice. John, I think it's time for you to take us into the episode itself. Right. Let me briefly recap Red Dwarf, the end, which is the beginning of Red Dwarf which is the end of Red Dwarf, which is almost where our story begins, but not quite. So let's begin at the beginning of the end, which is the beginning of the end. I really like how they've called the first episode the end. It's very clever. We open on, I think, Lister in a spacesuit, painting the name on a massive spaceship, the mighty Red Dwarf. Maintenance techs Lister and Rimmer are each convinced the other is insufferable. Perhaps Lister can bear it because if Officer Todd Hunter is anything to go by, everyone agrees Rimmer is a smeghead. A disgusting insult. We'll hear a lot. A funeral. The music, as George McIntyre's ashes are blasted into space. See you later, alligator. What a totally inappropriate choice. Why is nobody saying? We find Lister and Rimmer are not only work frenemies, but also bunk nemeses. They want a better life. Rimmer by finally passing the astro-engineering exam. Lister by spending all of his pay to buy a farm on flooded Fiji. McIntyre's wake has an unexpected guest for the viewer. Uh, It's the dead guy. George is very relaxed about having been brought back as a hologram. It's a lucky break. The ship can only sustain one hologram, apparently. Prob's not important. What is important? Lister has smuggled a cat on board, Frankenstein. She's pregnant, and nobody has told her not to look at the camera. While Rimmer spectacularly fails his exam, Lister refuses to tell Captain Hollister where he's hidden the cat, and he's sentenced to 18 months in stasis, a state of suspended animation, where time has no effect because sci-fi. Ship's computer Holly releases him, three million years late. Turns out Rimmer messed up some repairs, subjecting everyone on board to a lethal dose of cadmium-2. Only now is it safe for humans to walk the corridors. Lister is gutted. His secret crush, Kachansky, is gone. I mean, they're all gone. Everybody's dead, Dave. But Holly has revived one crew member as a hologram. Unfortunately for Lister, but most fortunately indeed for comedy, it's Rimmer. And somehow, they're not alone. A besuited, bequiffed and befanged bloke is here looking better than nice. He's a descendant of Frankenstein, an evolved cat. Lister decides to take the cat home. 
meet the new plan. Same as the old plan. Holly, plot a course to Fiji. Freeze frame. Legend. The beginning. And that is the end of the Bracey. And this is the beginning of our chat about the first episode of Red Dwarf. When you put it like that, there's a lot going on in this episode. There's a hell of a lot. They fit it all into that first 29 minutes, don't they? I think we should start at, at the very beginning, our first vision of the magnificent Red Dwarf. How do you guys think this holds up uh, 35 years later? I think it's magical. I really do. Um, there was a, a tweet by a lovely comic book artist, Jamie Smart, and he was re-watching Red Dwarf, and he talked about the starkness of that image. The music is incredibly sombre, like it's funereal. One man on his own, again, presumably Lister, like made tiny by the vastness of Red Dwarf, which is in itself made tiny by the vastness of the universe. It's apart from the sort of the music, it, it's it's silent. There's no like, we are all on a spaceship. It is a spooky time. Like there's <laughs> there's nothing. It's just lonely. And it's, it's a really bold choice to start a comedy show. It's doom laden, right? You don't, you you do not think you are going to get laughs after that <laughs> opening, right? Yeah, and it, and it's it's magical. What's amazing about it, given the tone that it sets, and I agree, it is it is. There's something really quite magnificent about it, isn't there? And 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 this sense that you're going to be moved. I think it says a lot for the performances that within seconds you are laughing properly belly laughing the minute you meet these guys I, it's just perfectly played for me this scene it, you get the dynamic of the two of them instantly yeah just immediately sets up everything you need to know about these two characters fergus i think when you first watched this didn't you say that you basically knew you were going to love the show from the minute that rimmer first speaks i i don't know now because because obviously i've seen i've seen that moment so many times i might have created the false kind of catalyst memory but Honestly, I was like nine. I'd probably had like a friend at school singing to me annoying, or I'd been singing at a friend to annoy them at school that day or something like that. And just the way he goes, Lister is so laden. You know straight away that's a guy that's trying to assert status generally in his life, but particularly over this person who clearly doesn't care about his status. And the follow-up to it is so over the top. Lister, have you ever been hit over the head with a welding mallet? I mean, it just says everything about the lack of power that this guy has in this situation. It's so, so incredibly extreme. Lister's completely nonchalant reaction to it. You just know everything you need to know about the two of them immediately. It's yeah. so well played. Every, every line in that scene sort of carries weight. Like, every line in that scene does something to further establish and really bed in the fact that one guy is incredibly up himself, thinks really highly of himself, really lowly of all others, can never be wrong, and is just, oh, if, if only the world would give him a chance. And the other guy sees through that completely and takes great delight in picking that apart whenever. And it's just everything they do and say builds to this and adds to this that is, as a, as an introduction to a comedy show goes that's such a solid like these are what these characters are you like this you're in luck just a quick straw poll when you guys saw the episode for the first time did you get the derivation of smeg nope i i'm a pure and innocent soul uh, i assumed it was the, from the sort of great tradition of British sci-fi pretend swears like your Judge Dredd's Drock 
and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, that uh, the Battlestar Galactica remake had a lot of frack in it, didn't it? I think that's why they get away with Smeghead and Smegups and a Smegazine under the BBC banner, because I don't think anyone clocked it. <laughs> I absolutely knew what it was at the age of nine. Yeah. I don't know why. I think it depends how recently you'd had your sex education. At nine? I'd hope I'd had none. I, I just, I think the reason that, like, my brain to this day still pushes back against the connection is that I don't think anyone's ever in the history of mankind thought, I know what we need to do. We need a, a cutesy contraction of smegma. Like, that word needs to be a little bit smaller and just a little bit cheeky. <laughs> Rob Grant and Doug Naylor did. I don't think that's a thing. What, you don't You don't think Grant and Naylor were doing that deliberately? Do you think it's a coincidence? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is, but I just kind of can't quite bring myself to... Uh... It would ruin it for you. Okay, that's enough Smegma for one episode, I think. I'm sure it'll be back. But Robert Bathurst, he's, he's in Toast of London. He's a proper actor, he's big. Was he a proper actor when this happened? Can't have been. I think, I think his heyday was after this. Yeah, that would make sense, yeah. Imagine imagine getting it... No, don't. I'm going to take us down a pointless uh, sidetrack there, trying to imagine what, what super famous people you could cast in the role of Todd Hunter. What is the point of that as a discussion? <laughs> I don't know that it's completely redundant, though, John. There is a thing about casting, right, that that's, I find this fascinating, that, that Alan Rickman was asked to read for Rimmer, and he said, no, can I do Lister instead? <laughs> you are a smeghead. And then, and then, as Alex corrected me recently, Alfred Molina was going to be the the Rimmer, until oh, they, gosh, they, they, I, they I think that. Grant Naylor kind of realised that they could have these awesomely well-known and respected actors in it, but there's no way they'll sign on for longer than one series. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine Craig Charles as Hans Gruber facing up against uh, Bruce Willis? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to see that, actually. Yeah, who wouldn't, now that, now that the idea exists, yeah. <laughs> but how interesting, I think, that... that Maybe Rickman saw Lister as being more an in, a more interesting character on the page. Where actors correct me, Rimmer's the the juicier role, right? Yeah, that the, the again the sort of the barely restrained fury that he knows deep down he needs to direct it himself. Mm, the self loathing that comes out later on, oh, it's, it's extraordinary. Is that something inherently British? Self loathing. Uh, I don't think it's exclusive to British people, but it, we do use it in comedy a lot, don't we? Seemingly a lot more than. <laughs> Other countries do. <laughs> uh oh. Seemingly, the natural British urge to like undercut yourself. I, I don't know how much like into the weeds of the American pilot you want to get onto. Please. Yeah, just the um, in the American pilot, something that fascinated me was the scene with the hologram. Who like he sort of introduces himself as like the only thing I can touch is myself. So my sex life hasn't changed, and that felt like a little bit of a kind of a Seinfeldy kind of a gag. Whereas the gag that lives in that same spot in the British one is him saying, I can only touch myself, so I'm not a threat to your marriages anymore. And, uh, Eric knows what I'm talking about, don't you? There's a cheekiness to that, like the, the inherent cheekiness of the Welsh. But it's <laughs> like, again, the, the difference between like, like it, oh, it's a masturbation joke, and the audience is like, ooh, masturbation. Whereas it's like, don't worry, guys, I'm not going to fuck your wives anymore. The American version, that's as close to self-deprecating as they're going to get. Yeah. And it's not actually. And it's even, it's probably even deeper than that, isn't it? It's not so much that we believe that McIntyre is a, is a player, so much as that we all laugh in recognition of the fact that we all, we all fear 
being cuckolded. <laughs> I, I think like the, the, the thing I loved about that line is like there's someone who's no longer a threat to your marriages. And then Joe knows what I'm talking about. And it just yeah. cuts to a guy who, like, he's clearly being cuckolded by this dead dude. He's laughing. And then a woman next to him, who's frankly sitting too far away from him to be his partner, elbows him in the side and he looks apologetic. <laughs> I've never really understood that moment, if I'm going to be completely honest. Speaking of bizarre moments and the, the funeral for this guy, mm. as um, See You Later Alligator plays. There's a scutter dancing, which, you know, that adds to the character of the scutters. There's also one guy in the background just having a little boogie to himself, and I think that's a fascinating choice. That, that is a weird choice. I, the weirdest choice is on the on the director's part, to have not gone, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, love, just um, <laughs> Dave at the back there, yes, that lovely energy, but would you mind, read the room maybe. It's almost like they don't trust the audience to get that See You Later Alligator was a funny choice of song for for a funeral. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So a, a little detail that I noticed, um, again, just going through sort of with a with a notebook and pen. Um, when Lister wishes Rimmer good luck for his exam, Lister means it. Like, it's a sincere... It really does. Like, it's, a, it's a genuine and sincere good luck. And Rimmer can't even take that. Like, he's such a vile little prick <laughs> that this genuine and sincere thing, which you'd think, if that comes from somebody who's been, like, getting on your nerves for the past X month, and like you're constantly back and forth and like bite, bite, bite. You'd think that would mean more. And I, I don't think that was a that was a flippant or a glib or like a, a stab of a good luck. It came across like Lister meant it. Lister were genuinely and sincerely wishing this guy well. And Rimmer lacks the fundamental decency to even acknowledge that. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Coming back to that, is Lister cool or not? You know, Lister, the guy who hasn't bought socks or deodorant for years, who sticks a cigarette in his ear, etc., spills the milk everywhere when he feeds the cat. He works with the guy, he lives with the guy, like centimetres away from him on a bunk bed, and yet he wears it so lightly, the irritation that Lister takes from Rimmer, whereas Rimmer cannot let anything go. And that's one of the things, I think, that brings Lister back down on the side of, no, this guy's cool. Yes, absolutely. He's also, it's nice that the last human is so human. Yeah. Right? He does mean it. You've hit the nail on the head, guy. The, the, that, it, it's, it's such a well-written pilot. Every <laughs> single exchange between them 
tells you everything you need to know about their individual characters and their relationship. That's, yeah. that's when they're heading great. to the funeral. Uh, Rimmer has got Lister's jacket, goes to hand it to him, and just drops it on the floor. And it's such a petty brick move. It's so small. But again, yeah, like that compared to Lister's quite sincere, you know, good luck with it. It's just, oh. And this is the first time Craig Charles has acted, right? I'm pretty sure he'd obviously done performance poetry, but he hadn't played a character before, I don't think. Yeah, and Chris Barry hadn't done that much on the screen. He'd done a lot of voices for kind of, there was a very early video game that he did, something The Wizard, where he played The Wizard. Oh, um, yes, that rings a bell. Yeah, and then he did some spitting image. Um, and so, yeah, I think none, none of them were particularly experienced. I, I love Red Dwarf, but it's okay to be a fan and critique stuff, right? That you love. It's it's important to you, right? you can't you can't truly love something without analysing its or examining its weaknesses and making your peace with it. Thanks, man. Because <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going to do here. It's it's it's. But again, I think it's a it's a director note, and I, I, Ed By is a bit of a hero of mine. But 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 still, no one had told Craig Charles that he doesn't have to play the comedy on every line. So when he says that I'm going to have a dog and a cat and breed horses, Craig Charles. There's just a before the cut away, there's just a moment where you see Craig Charles doing that. Oh, hang on, I've said something silly. And then it cuts to Rimmer going, Haven't you just said something silly? It's such a small thing, but you know, if we're if we're going granular, <laughs> if someone had just told him, Craig, you can't it's like in D D, right? You can't be the hero of every Let's definitely cut that reference. Um uh... <laughs> yeah, God forbid you sound nerdy on your Red Dwarf fan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good grief. About being nerdy about the right things. <laughs> There's a couple. They get ironed out. Clearly, Ed by sat him down and went, listen, man, like, like, like the way this, you have to play the truth of it. And if you're doing, like, watch Leslie Nielsen an airplane, do that. Don't, don't, don't try and let the audience know what the joke is. And I'll tell you what I think is absolutely fantastic acting from Craig Charles in this. And I think it must be coming from him because I don't see how you could really script it, or at least you certainly couldn't script it as he performed it. But when he realises that Kachansky's dead and he's looking at the ashes in that place and he just does that, it's very Liverpudly. And he's like, oh, hey. Like, you couldn't have scripted that. But he just, it's heartbreaking because it's so underplayed, but you just get his heart breaking in that moment. It's lovely, lovely bit of acting. I was thinking yesterday watching that sequence, the Everybody's Dead Dave sequence, as he walks through, you know, taking little, little fingerfuls of ash of what turns out to be his former crewmates, as Holly just repeats, everybody's dead, Dave. Dave, everybody's dead. Not Kachansky. Everybody, Dave. And just that for like a minute. Yeah. And as, as well as being very funny, that's like when you have that sort of, you, you, you step back and you think about it, like this, what an impossible thing to process. Yeah. And you would say like, everybody's dead. Surely not Peterson. Surely not set like, sure. Oh no, but not this. Because that's the biggest news anyone could feasibly have like you're the last surviving member of the human everybody's dead and you know that's obviously then undercut by the the insistence of holly and the the funny way he funny ways he sort of tries to get that information across but god what a dark thing that insistence is cruel i think holly gets to that exasperation a little too quickly (laughs) ah i've been saying it three times already and i know you've just come out of stasis for three million years but listen I don't know. I think there's a lot. Yeah, I've got a note here just saying it. I think it really shows how much Holly slipped over the years that he doesn't have that. No bedside manner. Yeah, the, the, the understanding that you need to do this gently and not just repeat, 
Everybody's dead, Dave. Everybody. Everybody's dead. But then explain to me the Gordon Bennett. Gordon Bennett, yes, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because he's been waiting for three million years to be able to have a conversation again. And finally it's happening. And he's just having to say the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not, although it's a horrifying concept to grasp, it's pretty straightforward fact. Everybody's dead. (laughs) How how else can you interpret that other than literally? Is Holly a sociopath? <laughs> no, he's just gone a bit funny after three million years, which gives uh, rise to my my favourite line in the whole episode, which I have barely laughed at every single time that I've watched it. Coming back to the Kachansky moment, where Lister eventually gets it together and says, "Oh, she was going to come with me to Fiji," I hadn't told her yet, and Holly's response to that is, "She wouldn't be much use to you on Fiji now, <laughs> not unless it snows and you need something to grit the path with." <laughs> also, the that I, I remember having to ask my parents what the word insurmountable meant even if she was alive the age difference would be insurmountable I went, what's that mean and they told me and then i laughed <laughs> it's amazing there's so much going on in that sequence can we talk about the fact that it is revealed in in that very downbeaten doom laden moment that rimmer killed the crew it is explicit in the script, but it's never said explicitly. The context of it is this is Lister waking up and, and coping with the three million years everyone dead. Thing. Yeah, Rimmer didn't fix the drive plate properly. And then Rimmer blaming that when he's brought back as the as the hologram, blaming it on Lister because Lister wasn't there to help him with it. He's still like, this was somebody else's fault. Oh, yeah. This, this man who literally existed out of time, it's his fault, not me. <laughs> Rimmer killed 168 people, including himself. Oh, actually, while we're here, can I just really quickly, because this, this is not a complete tangent, but the iPlayer the description of this episode reads, The mining ship Red Dwarf is an old tramp steamer working around the moons of Saturn. It is five miles long and three miles wide, with a crew of 169. Within 24 hours, 168 of them will be dead. <laughs> God, well, if you made it to the end of that extremely tedious description... You might want to watch it. <laughs> I player, have you seen Red Dwarf? <laughs> Do you know what Red Dwarf is? Did anyone say comedy to you? That that's weird. I'm not. It's not just me, right? That's an that's a that's an odd one. All of that is weird. All of that is. Weird. I mean, it's a good hook right at the end. But why do you have to wade through so much maths? There's a prospective viewer out there somewhere that's that's going to be satisfied by going right. It's five miles long. Okay, good because I won't watch. Any sci-fi sitcoms where the ship is any shorter than 4.75 miles. So I will continue. Thanks, BBC. They've got all the really important information in there. I think that's the that's the good thing. Can I talk about the, the fact that there's so much packed into this episode? As we've talked about already, we've we've established what an what a crazy amount of character and story and setup and awesomeness and context and lovely stuff. And even in the in the background, it's not necessarily great writing, but when Hollister says, like, don't you remember what happened on the Oregon with the rabbits? They're clearly thinking about world building, the Jupiter Mining Corporation. These are cool, these are cool sounding things in the periphery of this of this episode. And yet, there is a three-minute scene running from 629 to 929, where Rimmer and Lister are in their bunks talking about yes, Rimmer's exam and Lister's plan, but it's a three-minute scene. In a pilot where they're cramming stuff in, they let three minutes for that scene. What's going on there, guys? I love the scene. I, I love it. I love the bit about Lister's plan. I think there's there's it's so rich with gags, like the the sheep and a cow and breed horses. Um, no, with horses and horses, but the um, 
thing about the rising sea levels, it's only three feet. They can wade. Like, <laughs> there's a real fool's optimism to that. Mm. And I think, like, fundamentally, Lister is an optimistic character. He has to be hopeful because he's the last living human. Mm. And if that sort of core of optimism broke, that would be it for him. It's not sheer idiocy of it's only three feet they can wade, but it's a real sense of like, I'll be all right. We'll fix it. We'll, some, you know, some something will come up. We'll, she'll be right. Is that the same? Is he, is his line? The sheep are gonna have to be quite tall. Like again, there's a gen- The word "quite" is so <laughs> perfect in that sentence. Do you know what else? Like while we're talking about performance, the lads. I think Red Dwarf is really good at not being too laddish, given its maleness. But the lads, Chen, Selby, Peterson, and Lister, I find their bants and their stuff quite affecting and quite natural. Quite realistic. I, I buy into it, even though it's contrived. It's con- it, it feels like those characters contrive the stuff that they do, rather than it being contrived by a writer and forcing a bunch of actors to do it. Like when at the end of the scene, when Rimmer gets out his notepad to write Lister up, and they all go, "Ooh!" Like it, it feels very real to me. I have done the Peterson coin on the forehead trick to someone, and it worked. Yep. Go on, guy. You t- you you tell us about your experience. With oh it. no, no, sorry, I wasn't trying to cut you off. That was just me excitedly like, yep. I've just yeah done it and it's worked and it's a it's a charming thing. It's a delight and that's the only reason it's in there, right? Is to let the audience know that it does work, so you can go and do it on your friends who haven't seen the episode. I was just going to say I love love that he um, when they're applauding McIntyre's uh, return speech as a hologram, it cuts away to the wide shot and uh, Peterson rather than clapping is taking this as an opportunity to just continue smacking the back of his head to see if he can get the coin off. <laughs> In my mind, all the way through, he was still just just, just smacking himself. We haven't talked about yeah. the cat yet, so we should probably just quickly give it up for Danny John Jules's magnificent performance. My, my, my first note about cat is the weird muted trumpets when the cat appears. <laughs> like, I did not remember that. Like, a real kind of vaudeville... Like real mutes on those trumpets, giving it a. It turns out the the bright upbeat theme tune at the end of the episode is Cat's theme, not Lister and Rimmer's. That's the music we we hear when the cat comes out. It's bam 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 <laughs> bam sleek sleek and slinky. He's awesome. Does he play a cat? Like he's 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 very vain. He's hypersexualized. Well, you you're the owner of. Sorry, you're the father. Uh, I don't know how you. Whether you owner <laughs> you're the owner. Thank you're the owner of two cats, not the father. Is he is he playing a cat? He's not playing my cats. <laughs> insofar as he's not lazy and violent, but um, <laughs> I guess one of the things is that cat isn't attention starved, and that is that is a, I think something that, that his capriciousness. Yes, the 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 narcissism. That's something you can put on cats certainly. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. He is a cat. I think I think the the character narrowed a little bit as the series went on. Yes, but that can be the character growth. He's been hanging out with two humans of very different types, and he clearly knows something of human civilization already. I mean, it's very weird, and I, I'm pretty sure it's never explained in subsequent episodes how cat civilization learnt the song "Me and My Shadow," why they speak English, why he's got a wardrobe full of loud suits why he knows what a monkey is but it's, it's all great i don't really care but um as far as i know they don't ever explain any of that right he's presumably just been watching videos somewhere i, I think it might specifically be flintstones videos and again i don't know if that's from the book oh god i'm saying it again but i'm sure there's something about i know there's the the wonderful like gag about 
Wilma and Betty Flintstone that mm. comes like way later in the series. But I'm sure there is something about like learning English. Oh, that's right. Through there watching is. old Flintstones videos. Oh, there we go. Yeah, right. Well, that's half answered my question. And yeah, there are there are videos and things around. I got the impression there was a whole evolutionary culture that grew up and then faded away again. An empire on the ship. I like that in itself as an idea is just magical. Like mm. three million years have happened, an entire civilization has risen and fallen mm-hmm. in the cargo hold of a spaceship. Yeah. And then they've gone out, they've become a spacefaring people in and of themselves to fight like I yeah, yum, 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 yum. Just, <laughs> just lovely stuff. I'm getting genuine chills off you saying that. But yes, it's awesome. Anytime you step back from Red Dwarf, when when you ever whenever you take a step back from the jokes it's easy to become a little overwhelmed by the actual context, the actual setting, the situation that Lister's in. Yeah, the deliberate choice to not have aliens. Everything that, like, Lister is alone, and all of the problems that he encounters are from humans. Like, all the monsters he finds, all the, like, deranged robots, all of this is of a human doing. Yeah. Every, like, there's, there's almost, like, an accountability to that, yeah. which is kind of an opposite to Rimmer's complete lack of self-accountability. He says that, you know, the universe is against him. There's always something, and it, something is stopping him. Whereas Lister, again, you know, if you if you can't pass first time fair and square, why bother? He's ultimately, like, he, he knows he's a slob, but he, he, he owns that. That's, that's who I am. He's got a small sort of set of plans. And I think, yeah, there's there's something quite powerful about the fact that every adversary is like an intrinsic to humanity rather than like oh no aliens are happening now oh it's it you know horrors unknown no we, we can make plenty of our own horrors we got loads of that we've we've just talked about some moments that maybe don't make sense but we, we there's one question guy that we want to ask absolutely everybody every uh, guest that we have you are privileged to be the first the trendsetter <laughs> what That's me is the best moment in this episode it's a close run thing for me i really like the chat about the the plan as we mentioned sheep and a cow and breed horses is just a lovely line i think the the best bit is where list has been brought up in front of the captain uh where he shows that he knows about the cat he's had a photo taken um i don't think you're really into like lister's plan for what the cat is and and, and why that existed but we've We've had a lot to cover. Mm. What are they going to do when they find the cat? Well, they'll um, dissect it, make sure there's no threat to the ship. Will they put it back together when they're done? No, Lister. And then Lister says, with respect, sir, what's in it for the cat? <laughs> and that, that's lovely. It's a, <laughs> like, it's a hilarious line. It's a great line like from a characterization standpoint. It's showing that he's protecting this delicate small thing it's showing that he can talk to authority without being immediately dismissive of it but also that he will i mean obviously part of the plan was to get put into stasis because he didn't want to spend any more time doing red dwarf stuff he just wanted to get back to earth but the the fact that he he cares for this creature's well-being and it, it's just hilarious with respect to what's in it for the cat that is a great line yeah it's on the it's on the board great great choice guy and Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. This episode of the podcast should probably be called Let's Be Honest. What a guy. No, I've, I'm, I'm so, so happy to have been here. Um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing where you folks go with this and uh, yeah, hearing what, 
you and what your guests have to say about the coming episodes. I genuinely can't wait. If we're lucky enough to to continue, please come back and I would uh, be delighted. Pick pick an episode, your fave. Oh, I, I've I've got a, a good ten minute diatribe about what I want from a Red Dwarf point and click adventure game, like in the style of Day of the Tentacle. Ooh. Honestly, I and and I'll just be saying this to my cats. If, I, if I'm not doing it on mic, so at least it'll go somewhere. Now, I'm sure the listeners have absolutely loved getting to know your Red Dwarf Obsession guy, but um, if they want more Guy Kelly, where can they find you? Gosh, I'm all over the shop. Uh, Twitter and Blue Sky at Brain Mage. I stream Cryptic Crosswords on twitch.tv forward slash Brain Mage. Uh, you don't have to know how cryptics work to watch that i barely know how they work i think most of the fun is watching me suffer and finally if you enjoyed listening to me talking about something that i enjoy and really love then you'll get a great kick out of me talking about something i don't particularly care for when you listen to i don't like mondays the unedited husband and wife garfield review podcast i make with my wife neither of us particularly care for garfield and we've decided that one strip per episode we should review every single garfield strip we're a about 300 years away from being finished if we keep churning them out one a week. Um, it's better than it sounds, I promise. Oh, you can also um, see some pictures that I've taken. I've recently gotten into taking and selling prints of my photographs because it turns out the secret to fine art photography is autism, and you can find that on hyperfocus.photography. Guy Kelly, thank you for coming on the podcast. Was it better than life? Oh, infinitely so. Oh, that was awesome. Guy Kelly, thank you so much. That was that was brilliant. Where where didn't we go with that chat? Well, we're about to find out. We are he was such a good first guest. So good. Like just he's really set a bar. He's got a Mr. Flibble puppet. How many subsequent guests are gonna have their own hand puppet? Yeah, that's interesting. I suspect a lot are gonna be referring to the books. I think that's just the kind of literary gang comedians tend to be mm, very highbrow yes yes what did what didn't we cover there's a handful of very small things i mean from the the comprehensive notes that i made before this episode okay here's one and i bet this is one that we didn't cover for a very good reason which is that nobody else thought of it something i really enjoyed seeing george mcintyre's funeral there's a little welsh flag on the tube containing his ashes. <laughs> and I really liked just that reassuring hint that the country of Wales still exists in the far future. It's not been absorbed into some sort of UKIP nightmare. It's uh, it's still out there. Unless, I suppose, unless the flag is like a sort of confederacy kind of, you know, symbol of a lost past, but without the, oh, yeah, embarrassing the white the... supremacist overtone. <laughs> so, yeah, faintly, faintly awkward for all the British people there. Could you go a step further? Could Wales have, have seceded? Uh, could it be its own nation? It's possible, isn't it? But, I mean, in the real world, I don't see it happening. But is this the podcast to discuss that? No. <laughs> but yes, in the in an imaginary future, sure it could. Yeah, why not? Out of pure exasperation if we don't. Oh, no. that's Again, that's going into a, a realm that we just shouldn't touch. Macintosh still got the accent, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A very, it's a Welsh accent. The Welsh flag is honouring him, I assume. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, that's how I read it, yeah. It's still around, unless there was one other Welsh guy on the on the squad. There's only 169 of them. If it's, if it's as international as Grant Naylor wanted it to be, then there's only really room for one Welshman, I think. Absolutely. There'll be trilingual signs now, so you have the English, the Welsh, and the Esperanto all over the place. They put an American in charge, though. 
that's something we mm. we didn't talk about a huge amount. Like that's that's probably important. Yeah, some things don't change, I guess. <laughs> I remember really disliking Mac McDonald's performance when I first saw it. Oh, interesting. It's not his performance, it's the character. And it's the fact that in sitcoms, there's always someone who ruins the fun. 99% mm. of sitcoms have a fun ruiner, a rule follower who's just who seems to be there. I think some writers confuse that with being a straight person, mm. like the butt of the joke, but that exasperation at someone else's naughtiness or or or, or ridiculousness i just i it's i don't know sitcoms don't need that character and i maybe identified captain McAllister as being that yeah turns out he's not turns out he's actually just still being really funny and actually i don't think red dwarf has that character even rimmer or Crichton or 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 holly all the people except lister who should be quite downer in terms of rule following they cause absolute mayhem I think I had that problem with Marge on The Simpsons. Do you think Hollister's sort of um, enveloping the Crichton role in the earlier series? It's all about perspective, right? Like, coming back to Red Dwarf as a grown-up and going, oh, no, he's really funny. Marge can be funny. There's some episodes like her gambling addiction episode. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a while. Maybe it's aged poorly. I do appreciate that, that he doesn't, try and create a comedy character for like he's playing it quite straight and i can imagine there'd be a temptation to go oh, i'm going to be you know do some sort of wacky thing with it because i'm in this one episode and then i pop back up later You're like well, how can i make an impact give him a crazy futuristic eye patch that changes color or something that would involve <laughs> props wouldn't it but you know some sort of wild accent or something no he's still got a little pot of pens on his desk <laughs> um which is just off that really little bridge <laughs> maybe it's the writing maybe because i can't think again we mentioned this in the episode but i can't think of anyone who doesn't absolutely suit and fill the role mm. that they play yeah that's true including yeah. all the small parts is that the writing or it's almost as if the, the the writers as if it was devised with the actors in mind yeah 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 well we talked about the energy of the listers mates didn't we but yeah that's definitely got that feeling hasn't it yeah Maybe that's what I meant when I when I said realistic. I just meant yeah, you, you could you could buy it. We didn't mention the fact that Mark Williams is amongst them. Oh He's yes, probably the most famous cast member in Red Dwarf. Yeah, probably true. Yeah, for people under thirty, people who haven't watched the Far Show but do like Harry Potter. Yeah, Peterson's a lovely character as well. I'm I'm glad he's the one they they bring back uh, in yeah. later episodes, uh, if only his forearm. Uh, <laughs> yes, and we see him. We see him again when uh, when they go through the the hole in time, right? And he's trying to chat up to ladies. No spoilers. <laughs> Is he successful? As one of most people under thirty, probably uh, there's something quite sort of wholesome and bumbling about his character, which does feel like Mister Weasley. Ah, really? Right. Yeah. Interesting. But he still comes across as... I always found him quite Danish. I don't know why. Just imagining it was a beer was never far away from his hand. That Yeah, that feels that feels authentic to the character. Yeah, for sure. What a sweeping generalisation. Mm, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, he's Scandinavian and he clearly enjoys a drink. I mean, they all do. Yeah. And you don't get the impression any of them take their jobs that seriously. You know, they're not, they're not here for... To go up, up the ziggurat, lickety split, are they any of them? You wonder how they got on board in the first place. They kind of interviewed well. No, that's true. 
I mean, that's reassuring for the future as well, isn't it? Because they're all doing jobs that you might imagine now would be replaced by AI, but clearly not. They're not. The robots are not uh, sorting out the the suit. Even though there are robots that do stuff like that, for some reason the scutters can't fix the suit dispensers. Well, they've only got three fingers. Mm. That's a design flaw, isn't it? I mean, they can flick the V's as superior officers, but they can't um, put a fourteen B up a suit nozzle. Yeah, but more to the point, they can. They can build a spaceship the size of a city, but they can't create a service droid that can mimic a human hand. Maybe there's a law in the future that stops them. It'll be like some sort of EU directive where it's like, okay, if 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 we allow people to create service droids with human hands, then we're all going to be out of a job. I mean, not us EU bureaucrats, <laughs> but... Assuming that human hands are the best possible design of hands. <laughs> which they can't which they cannot be let's be honest they are the best we've got don't knock nature slash god that's uh <laughs> it's it's got us from the trees the plains of of africa it's got us all the way from that to um weapons with which we could annihilate each other in seconds i think you've pinpointed something very interesting about the future rob grant wrote a book called incompetence i think he believes in a co- uh, a kind of idiocracy mm. it's almost unfair injustice when they pin like Rimmer can't be blamed for for not fixing the drive plate properly, causing the the leak that kills everyone mm. in episode one. It's not just because he sh- he couldn't possibly have had that authority. It's surely also that in the future, like look at the state look at the state of Red Dwarf in the first place. It was doomed. It's doomed. They have <laughs> robots that can't fix uh, <laughs> soup nozzles. They employ well, let's be honest, wastrels. Yes, and and roustabouts. A crew of 169, of whom one is Rimmer. I mean, that's that's one too many Rimmers, surely. I'll tell you what, actually. Another thing we didn't talk about, it's such a small thing, but this, this relates to Rimmer. When he signs his exam paper, the signature is just so perfect. It's like this little coiled-up worm of tension. It's, it's the most repressed looking signature you've ever seen in your life. It's just brilliant. Yeah. I don't know if that was Chris Barry's actual hand or they got a you know, a, a specialist signature actor in to to do it. I thought it was a, I I assumed it was a performative flourish. I reckon he'd I reckon he'd done that. I reckon he'd practiced it a few times. Oh is yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely it's definitely a statement. It just looks like V's <laughs> Yes. Like it's it's really jagged. And so if we apply graphology to Rim, to Rimmer's signature then Blimey O'Reilly. He needs he needs assistance. I guess. He really does. He, although on the other hand, he's such, he's an open book, isn't he? You could get everything you could get from that signature. You would immediately go, uh-huh. the minute he walked into your your analyst's uh, room, you'd just be like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a good graphologist because you're exactly as coiled up and self-loathing as your signature suggests. Yeah, well that that signature is at the centre of something we didn't talk about a huge amount. In the episode, which is the whole the whole exam sequence is so so well performed. Every everything that Rimmer does in that, from from writing his answers all over his body, like how was he ever going to read something off his calf during an exam? Do you know, what I mean? like come on, man. So the thinking behind it anyway. But then I don't know. We mentioned telegraphing a little bit. You know what's going to oh, happen. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. But it's still so enjoyable to watch. His face, the zeal on his face just before he passes out. That's that yeah, grin. Yeah. I don't think we ever see Rimmer do that face again. 
yeah. ever. It's, it's almost like that salute is is just this little, well, listen, I know I'm going to fail this, but look at that. Look at that. Look how well I did that. You're the ones missing out. I, I don't know. I don't know that he thinks he's going to fail. I think at that point his brain is... is <laughs> you think he's living in a, a whole different reality. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I like that. <laughs> Just the energy being put into completely the wrong thing as well. Like yes. instead of actually studying, he's just spent all his time riding on himself. Yes, yeah, that's that's a, a delightful irony, frankly. <laughs> yeah, that is Rimmer, isn't it? He's just spent his whole life with really clear goals, but channeling his energy into exactly the wrong ways of achieving them in just about every aspect of his life. Yeah, he works so hard at doing the wrong thing all the time, and then it's always someone else's fault. Did you notice the look on his face right at the end of the episode when uh, Lister says, look out if the slime's coming home and then we get the freeze frame? And it's so interesting, the choice that Chris Barry's made in that moment because there's so many different things that Rimmer could be thinking about the prospect of them returning home. But he just looks utterly disgusted with Lister and this whole scenario. He's the one person brought back. There's 167 other people that could have been brought back. He's there. And he's just so disgusted. Chris Barry gives great freeze frames. He, does, he really yeah. does. And and that you can see a lot in that. What's he disgusted at? Not going home, surely. No, it's... it's or are we seeing a deep-rooted disgust at the idea that he would ever see his family again? Or... <laughs> uh, or is it disgust at the fact that he has to spend that time with this with this life? I, I think that's what it is, yeah. I mean, he seems pretty convinced that there's nobody left anyway, that Earth is... That's where the slime thing comes from, isn't it? He's, um, he's basically suggested that... that humanity will be over and done with by the time they get back anyway. Or it could be as simple as, as as that insult switched. Like he wanted to insult Lister and Lister is has embraced the word and reclaimed it for his own. Yes, actually, yeah, no, that could be it. Actually it's like, oh God, what's the, that's a foretaste of things to come. He's gonna be even slobbier. He's gonna be even worse to live with. Yeah, maybe that's it actually. I like that. I just want to mention one thing. Yeah. Before we stop talking about this extraordinary episode i have a feeling we're going to talk about it in future episodes it's the moment when rimmer calls todd hunter a, he says ah you big lig oh yeah yeah what is that yeah the script the kind of tran- transcripts of the scripts say you big lig which makes no sense i mean it is a it is a term right for um basically going swanning around town going to free parties right a i have a weird feeling that word came about that that word had its heyday in the Early yeah, 90s, yeah, yeah. a few years after. Yes, oh yeah, God no, I don't think it relates to that because it wouldn't make any sense in that context. No, it sounds like he was going to say something else. Mm. Bootlicker and got the... Ah, uh, yeah, right, okay. The way around yeah, or yeah. Like, you know. Or we could ascribe it to Grant and Naylor's habit of, of just trying a little insult out. Smeghead stuck. Yep. Lig, ligga. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we get gimboid for a bit, don't we? But that does, I don't think that lasts. Goit as well. Those two, the two Gs have, have multiple uses. There are some I, we're going to come to this series. I think we'll just get one. Yeah. Modo. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Come up. yeah. Anyway, that spoilers for future episodes. If you're only listening for the insults, now you might as well stop. Well, maybe we should all stop listening, John. I think it's time. Well, that's enough chat about episode one, isn't it? We've been thorough. No one can take that away from us. Ah, sorry, I stopped listening. What? <laughs> you're just you're just following orders too precisely. I am. Come back next time for episode two. We're going to be talking about future echoes with the awesome Beck Hill. Oh yes, that is not to be missed. See you then. 
Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.